Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. To summarize the context leading to the events that we are going to see in a moment, this is Passover week. This is that week when lambs are sacrificed in commemoration of the first Passover in Egypt. That's that event when God spared all those who applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts from the judgment that he was pouring out upon the surrounding Egyptians, remember? This is during uh, this is that week in which Jesus is betrayed by Judas. This is that week where Jesus is arrested and he faces trials. Trial before Pilate, trial before Herod, trial before Pilate again. This is that week where Jesus is beaten and flogged and mocked. This is that time when the crowds, when given an opportunity to release Jesus, choose instead a murderous insurrectionist named Barabbas to release. This is that time when Jesus then looks upon the city of Jerusalem and pronounces judgment. And this, of course, is that time when Jesus is crucified. Of course, you remember the context when Jesus is crucified, that there are three crosses. Jesus in the middle and on one side and on the other are criminals. And that's what I want us to look at, first of all, in Luke 23, verse 32. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. A criminal next to Jesus, as Jesus is being crucified, apparently in our passage, is saved. So immediately as we look at our passage, we're reminded that no matter our background and no matter uh, the past, no matter the degree of sin in which we have partaken, no matter how much time we have left on earth, you can be saved. And so, one of the criminals attained salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. That criminal who didn't have any works to speak of, he didn't have time to show any evidence of genuine salvation, he didn't really have any ability to uh, live out repentance, he would have no opportunity to prove the genuineness of his faith through discipleship, yet he was saved. What did he did have? However, what did he have, however? That criminal next to Jesus as Jesus is being crucified is overcome with the fear of God. In fact, he rebukes the other criminal and says, do you have no fear of God? He's considering the eternal state of his soul. 
in that fear of God, he recognized Jesus Christ as the righteous Son of God who had power over eternity. So he could say to Jesus, remember me when you come into the kingdom. He believed that Jesus was the rightful king over the kingdom of God, and he trusted him for salvation in that moment. And so with that confession in the last hours, the last moments of this man's life, this criminal was gloriously saved. This was salvation by the grace of God. This is salvation by the grace of God who arranged this situation providentially so that this criminal who was completely unworthy found himself dying as a result of his own sin next to the one who could save his soul. That's the grace of God. In response to this criminal's God-given faith, how does Jesus respond? Look in verse 43. He said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Truly, without a shadow of doubt, this today, this is a guarantee you're going to be with me in paradise. That is absolute assurance. There's no doubt. There should be no doubt in this man's mind. His eternal destiny is now secure. He will be with Jesus this very day and for eternity. This is a criminal. Lifelong criminal for all we know. But in his last breaths, he confesses Jesus and he's saved. So now, here's our question tonight, though. Jesus speaks to this criminal who believes in him and gives him absolute assurance of salvation. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And so we ask, on what basis can Jesus declare those words of absolute assurance? On what basis could he guarantee that this repentant sinner would find himself with Christ in the presence of God in heaven that day and for eternity? How could he make that promise? And what we're going to see is he could make that promise because of what he knew was going to happen momentarily. And that's what we observe on Good Friday. In much preaching on the cross, maybe you've heard preaching like this, maybe you've seen movies like this, where the focus is upon the physical suffering of Jesus. And so there's a very famous movie that came out some years ago, where, I mean, just gruesome, and it seemed like the emphasis was just upon blood. As if the punishment that Jesus bore at the hands of men is what made atonement for sin, and so let's make that as gruesome as we possibly can to drive home the fact that he is paying for our sin And certainly, Jesus' blood needed to be shed, and certainly he suffered greatly at the hands of men. However, it was not the suffering which Jesus received at the hands of men that made atonement for our sin. It was the suffering which Jesus experienced at the hand of God that atoned for our sin. It's this judgment by the Father executed upon Jesus that we see next in our passage. And so look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. They crucified Jesus about the third hour, 9 a.m. It's now the sixth hour, or 12 p.m., and our passage says there was three hours of darkness over the whole land from 6 to 9, that is from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., This ought to be the brightest time of the day. This is when the sun would be its highest, and the Bible says that there was complete darkness. What is this? What's happening here? What's happening here is not normal, and it's not natural. This is, in fact, a miraculous work of God as his son hangs upon the cross. He makes everything go dark. The Father means to communicate something by this to all those who are present. What he's communicating is that those who are witnessing what's happening ought to have this impending sense of judgment or mourning or even woe. 
Amos 5.18 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have that day of the Lord? It's darkness and it's not light. Darkness associated with the judgment of the Lord. Joel chapter 3, verse 14, same thing. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Simply illustrating the point that God associates the coming darkness with his own judgment and his providing of refuge for those who are his. Not only is there biblical precedence for judgment associated with darkness, but we see there's also biblical precedence for God bringing judgment through darkness even upon a localized area. Can you think of a time biblically when God brought judgment and he brought darkness upon one area, but he allowed there to be light in another? Remember in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 10, the Bible says that God brought darkness that could be felt, yet in the land of the Israelites there was light. And so there's precedence for darkness associated with God's judgment. There's precedence for darkness being cast by God over a uh, region, whereas there is light in others. But there in Exodus, when God brings darkness over the Egyptians, what is he doing? Remember, that is that ninth plague, that darkness that could be felt, this, this idea of a cold dread overcoming all those who were under that darkness. What was happening? Why was God doing this? This was that calm before the storm, before that tenth plague came, which was the death of the firstborn. And this final judgment, it is this final judgment, that death of the firstborn in Egypt that necessitated the Passover. All those who are believing, believing by faith that God has provided a means for deliverance would take a lamb and kill it and take the blood and put it on the doorpost so that when the death angel came, it would go over those homes of believing individuals and they would be saved from the wrath of God while judgment fell upon others who were in darkness. And so... The first time we see a localized area of darkness via the judgment of God, God is pouring out his judgment while simultaneously providing a means of escape for those who believe by faith. That's what happened in Egypt. That's also what's happening in our passage in Luke chapter 23 on Good Friday. Instead of three days of darkness, like in Egypt, here there are three hours of darkness. Instead of judgment upon the sins of Egypt, this symbolizes that judgment upon the sins of the world. Instead of a temporary salvation provided by the blood of an earthly lamb, this is an eternal salvation accomplished by Jesus, the heavenly lamb. The miraculous arrival of sudden darkness was an act of God indicating that a time of judgment and woe had come. It was meant to bring feelings of fear and guilt and mourning upon those who experienced it. Amos chapter 9, Amos foretells such a judgment. It says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth and every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. You can imagine such a situation. Middle of the day, the midst of unusual circumstances. Remember from Sunday, we talked about 
Palm Sunday with all that chatter that was happening about whether this really was the Son of God, the Messiah, unusual circumstances, one who claims to be the Son of God, one who pronounces judgment upon the city, and now he's crucified, and all of a sudden everything goes dark. You better believe that there's some there who are beginning to quake in their boots a little bit. There's hearts that are beginning to be struck with feelings of fear and guilt and mourning. That's clear by verse 48 of our passage. This darkness, however, in our text was more than, uh, more about more than striking fear in the hearts of people. This was an expression of God's judgment. Not judgment which would be poured out upon people, but judgment which he is pouring out upon his own son. This now is where we find the purpose of the cross. This is where we find the divine purpose of the cross. Although it was sinful men who crucified Jesus, it was God the Father who was at work choosing that moment to work salvation for all of mankind. When Peter was preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did him, uh, did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so we make no mistake... As much as things seem absolutely out of control, as Jesus is crucified by wicked men, this is God working according to his predetermined plan, salvation for all who would believe in Christ. And so this has been in God's plan from the beginning. In Acts 4, again, the disciples are sure to emphasize the fact that these wicked men were doing whatever God's hand had planned and predestined to take place. So God is at work in these hours of darkness, as Jesus hangs on the cross. What is he doing? In these three hours of darkness, God is placing upon Jesus the sin guilt of the world. He's pouring out his judgment upon him as he bears that sin guilt. It's in these three hours of darkness that what is described in Isaiah 53 is taking place. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And it's in these moments of darkness that God is doing just that, that moment when all Passover lambs are being slain by the priests as suitable substitutes for their offerers. Jesus is hanging upon the cross where he was about to be slain by God as a suitable substitute for all who would believe in him. God has offered the perfect Passover lamb, without spot, capable of taking away the sin of the world. His lamb would be able to bear his full wrath, thus thus satisfying the righteous judgment, his righteous judgment towards the sins of all those for whom Christ died. And so Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
This is substitutionary atonement. This is penal substitution. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins on his body, in his body, on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by whose by his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's what's happening in these moments of darkness. God is pouring out upon His perfect Son the just penalty for our sins. Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb, the sin offering, the scapegoat, the perfect fulfillment of all the sacrificial system is bearing the full wrath of God, which your sin and my sin deserves. The word which the Bible uses to describe this, this satisfaction, this satisfying of God's judgment and the turning away of His wrath is the word propitiation. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus willingly bore the wrath of God. Jesus willingly bore the wrath that was due us because of our sin. And God's wrath was completely spent. God's wrath was completely expended. His justice was perfectly exercised. His righteousness was perfectly expressed. And that's why Jesus, in a few moments, could say, it is finished. And why is he doing this? So that you and I could be saved by the grace of God through faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 28 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is no small feat for God to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How do you allow a sinner to go free, yet remain consistent in your own justice? God, by offering His own Son upon the cross as that substitute for us, maintained His justice, pouring out His wrath upon His Son, while providing the opportunity for you and I to be perfectly justified at the same time. So what's the result? Well, Paul says in Romans 3, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Three hours of darkness are the hours of Christ's greatest suffering. He, the sinless one, is counted a sinner by the Heavenly Father. He with whom Christ has perfect, uninterrupted fellowship has now turned his back upon his son, treating him as if he were an enemy. 
He who was the perfect embodiment of God's holiness is now being treated by God as the full embodiment of sin. He who deserved the greatest honor and exaltation by the Father is now experiencing divine rejection. This, for Jesus, the perfect one, was the greatest suffering he could ever face. It was this turning away of the Father's face from him, that broken fellowship and that treatment by God as a sinner that caused Jesus to pray in Matthew 26, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus suffered all kinds of suffering. He absorbed the floggings without lashing back. He received the mocking without retribution. He endured crucifixion while praying for his attackers. But now experiencing that feeling of being forsaken by the Father, that's when he cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The eternal one bore an eternal judgment in just three hours of time. The Father placed upon Christ the sins of the world and judged him as such. His his full wrath against that sin was spent upon Jesus. His judgment was satisfied. His wrath was turned away. So Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Stuart Townend captures this moment well in his song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. And so God is perfectly satisfied. And how do we know God is perfectly satisfied with the offering of Jesus? How do we know that God perfectly expends all of his wrath and judgment towards sin and is then propitiated through the suffering of Jesus? How do we know that he's satisfied? Well, look in verse 45. It says, while the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. The centerpiece of Jewish worship was the temple. Within the walls of the temple, beyond the courtyard, and past the altar stood the holy place. And within the holy place, there were two rooms. The first featured that altar of incense, the table of showbread. Beyond that room stood a veil. This is a thick curtain, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. Beyond that veil was the most holy place. There in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. It was there where the very presence of God would descend and dwell in the midst of his people. It was within that most holy place where the high priest and only the high priest could enter, That and only once a year. And that once a year, he had to bear the blood of a sin offering on the Day of Atonement. No one entered the most holy place except for that high priest, and he had to come with blood. That veil symbolized the fact that there was always separation existing between the holy God and sinful men. God was still, in a certain sense, unapproachable by sinful men. There forever existed a division. 
And it was clear, it was clear to all who came to worship that the best they could do through all of that uh, meticulous sacrificial uh, process and ritual and so on, the best they could do throughout all of that was still just get close to that area where God's presence would descend. The offering of the blood of the Lamb was necessary because man's sin deserved death and separation from God. God, by His mercy, allowed those sacrifices and those substitutes uh, so that... Man could go free upon the offering of an animal so that they could have a sense of fellowship with the Lord, though never really being able to come into his direct presence. Those sacrifices, as Silas and Nathan read earlier, those sacrifices could never cleanse the conscience of men. They could temporarily assuage the wrath of God, but they could not propitiate fully. It could make man ceremonially clean, but never really take away sin forever. And it's for that reason that that veil stood. Separation from the most holy place and the holy place. It was a constant reminder that the holy God is unapproachable by sinful man and that his wrath remained unsatisfied as long as man remained in his sin. Again, reflected in our passages from Hebrews. But what happens in this moment upon the cross, these moments of darkness? The Bible says that veil is rent, and we know it's rent from the top to the bottom. What does that symbolize? That the wrath of God is satisfied. It symbolizes the fact that God, through Jesus, has now made the way. It's a now open sign. It's a come on in sign. It's the division that once existed has now been lifted. The veil was torn from top to bottom by God himself signifying that the way into His presence has been made through Jesus. Christ's sacrifice is accepted. God's wrath is satisfied. The temple and the sacrificial system has been rendered obsolete. And so John records for us that at this time, Jesus then utters those three words. The veil is rent, indicating God is satisfied. Atonement has been made. And Jesus says in John 23, I'm sorry, in Luke 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this comes only after he utters those three words, it is finished. But now note in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, it says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Doesn't seem to be a very unusual thing for Jesus to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But what makes that unusual and significant is just a little bit prior, what did he say? Jesus lamented the fact that he had that feeling that the Father had forsaken him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he suffered the just wrath of God towards our sin, Christ experienced a sense of being forsaken by his heavenly Father. But now after having said it is finished and God being satisfied, Jesus now prays to his Father once more, but this time the terms sound quite a bit different. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Note the tenderness. The Father's back is no longer turned, upon, uh, turned to Jesus. 
The tender, intimate fellowship which the Father and the Son have enjoyed for all of eternity appears to be restored. It is finished. It has been accomplished. And so verse 46 says, And having said this, he breathed his last. And with that, Jesus is dead. He's dead, but he's victorious. He accomplished all that he came to do. He told us plainly in Mark 10 that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his, give his life a ransom for many. John 12, 27 He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. This is exactly what he came for. So Jesus has lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. He suffered at the hands of sinful men. He's borne the wrath of God. The result, God's wrath has been satisfied. The way into his presence has been made. Sin can now be freely forgiven once and for all and forever. And for whom? As we close, for whom? Is this sin forgiven? John 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Salvation has been accomplished, the door has been swung open, and what does the word say? All who will believe will be saved, all who believe will be freed from condemnation. And so this Good Friday, we remember both the incredible love of God for us, even while we were still in our sin. We remember the incomparable sacrifice which Christ has made as an expression of that love. Further, we are reminded that if we have believed in Jesus, then our sin debt has been entirely paid. God is satisfied. Our sin is forgiven. We have peace with the Father, and we have been ushered into relationship with Him. If you happen to be here tonight and you're not, A Christian, you are not trusting Jesus and Jesus alone for as your Savior and Lord, then be assured that if you believe in Christ as the Son of God this evening, He who fulfilled the law and bore your sin and satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf, then the way into the presence of God has been made and is available for you when you believe, just like that criminal on the cross to whom Jesus promised, today you'll be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your Son. Lord, you, by your mercy, provided a substitute for us, not like the substitutes under the Old Covenant. I could simply atone for sin temporarily, never truly taking away sin, never truly cleansing the conscience. But Lord, you have provided the perfect lamb. You've provided the perfect sacrifice who could once and for all and forever take away our sin. Not just temporarily turning away your wrath, but fully satisfying your wrath. So Lord, this Good Friday, we thank you for Jesus. 
We thank you for his death for us on the cross. For those of us tonight who are Christians, we pray that you'll help us to meditate upon the death of Jesus for us. Your love and your mercy and your grace and your compassion that led you to offer your own son as that sacrifice. The love and the compassion and the mercy and the grace of Jesus who gave himself willingly for us. Help us to be deeply moved and deeply affected by thoughts of the crucifixion. Then as we consider the suffering of Jesus, help us for our minds to immediately turn to what he has accomplished. That what he did for us on the cross has brought eternal results. That the way into your presence has been made. Our sin is fully forgiven. We have relationship with you. We have peace with you. We're no longer at enmity. We have full forgiveness. We have access even when we sin to seek out that cleansing. We have your Holy Spirit. We have your divine nature. You've united us uh, together with one another. You've given us an eternal inheritance. You've adopted us into your family. Help us be reminded of the effects of what Jesus has done for us, even beyond the atonement for our sin. And so give us a deep satisfaction in Jesus. Give us a sense of thankfulness towards Jesus. Give us a sense of indebtedness towards Jesus. I pray you would help us to then take those feelings, those thoughts of thankfulness and indebtedness, and to channel that into a full-orb discipleship. Help us to follow Him. Help us to love Him better. And then help us to reach others with the gospel as well. And then, Lord, we just pray for unbelievers tonight. We pray that you work in their souls. Help them to see their need for Jesus. Help them to see that there's full forgiveness, that they can be absolutely assured of their salvation. And we just pray that you'd save souls. In all of this, we pray that you'd be glorified. And Lord, we look forward to Sunday as we leave this message off thinking of Christ who's died. Of course, we know that in three days he rises again victorious. So I pray you'd help us to look forward to that day. And this Sunday, help us to understand what you have accomplished for us through that resurrection. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.